Take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John as we continue through John's Gospel. We are at the end of chapter 15, and we're actually going to turn into chapter 16, into the first four or three and a half verses of chapter 16. We know some of the verse and chapter divisions, they really don't fit the flow of the text sometimes, and that's certainly the case here. And so we're going to look at the end of chapter, or the beginning of verse 4, chapter 16 today. We'll pick up at the second half of verse 4 next week, Lord willing. But I've entitled my message this morning, Haters Gonna Hate. Haters Gonna Hate. You ever heard that before or said that to someone before? Sometimes when I've been running down the Tennessee volunteers, I've had people say to me, Haters Gonna Hate, Troy. You're just a hater. I'm not. I just like to speak the truth. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. But as we come to this passage today, Jesus is going to reveal that haters are going to hate. Many of you have probably heard of the early church father, Polycarp. Polycarp was born in 69 AD, so some 40 years more or less after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. He was personally discipled by the elderly apostle John. Yes, that John who wrote the gospel that we're studying. And as such, he was developed and matured in the faith until he became the pastor of the church in Smyrna. He was martyred by the Romans because of his unflinching and bold faith in Jesus Christ, a very well-known early martyr from the early church. In fact, the account of his martyrdom has come down to us through church tradition and church history, and it reads in part like this, quote, as Polycarp was entering the stadium, there came a voice from heaven, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw the speaker, but the voice was heard by those of our people. Thereupon he was led forth, and great was the uproar that heard Polycarp had been seized. He was led before the proconsul and was asked if he was the man. And when he confessed, the proconsul tried to persuade him, saying, have respect to your age. Then he said, swear by the genius of Caesar, repent, say away with the atheist. Now you need to know contextually, their understanding of being an atheist was anyone who didn't worship the myriad of gods. Most Roman citizens had all kinds of statues and gods in their homes, and so they considered Christians to be atheists, not believers in God, because they worshiped the invisible God. Then Polycarp looked at the mob of lawless heathen in the stadium and waved his hand at them, looking up to heaven and said, away with the atheists. So he even had some sense of humor there towards his death. The proconsul said, swear, and I will release you. Curse the Christ. Polycarp said, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme the king who saved me? The proconsul then said, I have wild beasts. If you do not repent, I will throw you to them. But he said, send for them. For repentance from better to worse is not a change permitted to us, but to change from cruelty to righteousness is a noble thing. And the proconsul said again, if you do despise the wild beasts, I will make you to be consumed by fire if you repent not. Polycarp answered, you threaten with the fire that burns for an hour and a little while is quenched, for you know not the fire of judgment 
to come the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Bring what you will. And the story goes on from there. They put him on the the pyre of wood and they sought to fasten him to the wood with nails. And he said, you don't need to fasten me with nails. The Holy Spirit will keep me here. His martyrdom is one of the most well-known from that period of time. But following the, the time of Polycarp, there will be countless martyrs, most of them unknown and unnamed on earth, but rewarded in heaven. You may be surprised to discover that in the 20th century, there were more martyrs for Christ than the previous 19 centuries combined. In other words, the martyrdom, the persecution against Christ's church has elevated significantly. Now, are Christians persecuted in the United States? In these ways, currently, no. But there are all sorts of ways in business, in education, in entertainment, in politics, in commerce, in sports of all places, that if you speak out with biblical values and beliefs, you will be persecuted. It will cost you something. Even in the South, even in Chattanooga, Tennessee, you may hear someone say, you're a Christian? Well, surely you're not one of those Christians with that antiquated sexual ethic and views on gender. If you are a passionate follower of Jesus who believes in biblical Christianity, you will likely face hostility and hatred from our world. Haters are going to hate. And Jesus, he doesn't want you to be unprepared for that eventuality. He doesn't want you to succumb to the temptation to deny him in the face of that type of hatred and hostility. And I believe that's why the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised, brought to John's remembrance decades later this specific teaching from the Lord to the 11 disciples about persecution and hatred from the world so that we would, so that they would be prepared to face what was coming. So it had immediate relevancy for those 11 disciples because within a very short time, they would all face severe persecution and hatred, but it has great relevancy even for us today in 2023 in the good old U.S. of A. So look with me in your Bible or in the Bible study outline as I read our focal passage. This is the inspired word of God. Beginning at verse 18 of chapter 15. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things that they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. 
If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Verse 26, when, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will, will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, verse one, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is a continuation of what's been ascribed with the title of the Upper Room Discourse. That discourse began at the end of chapter 13 as Jesus gave the new commandment on into chapter 14. In chapter 14, he gave the first promise of the sending of the Holy Spirit who would be with them, who would be in them. Move into chapter 15 and he begins to talk to them about the vine and the branches and how as branches who are connected and abiding in the vine, they will bear much fruit as the sap from the vine flows through them and produces that fruit. Then as you get to, into the end of chapter 15, we saw last week how Jesus reiterated the new commandment, but then he began to give some examples of how he loved them, and by extension, how Jesus loves us. We're supposed to love one another the same way he's loved us. How was that? Through his sacrificial death, through elevating their status from being not just servants, but to being friends as well, and then by telling them that he had chosen them and appointed them to be on mission for him. Now, these are all encouraging topics that we've seen so far in the upper room discourse over these last several weeks. But now as we get to this section, it's not quite as encouraging. It's more a warning. He wants us to know, and th this is very important, there will be costs. There will be uh, difficulties for following him. Again, I entitled it Haters Gonna Hate because I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus used the word hate eight times in the first eight verses of our focal passage. And he says, just in the same way as Jesus was savagely hated, they will also hate you who follow Jesus. In spite of the fact that Jesus had a very loving ministry, that he lived a very godly life, they hated him. And so too, we must expect hostility if we are followers of Christ. As we break down this passage, there are really three things I want us to consider about being hated in the world because of our allegiance to Jesus. Here they are. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to think about the reality of being hated. The reality of being hated. Jesus's words here indicate that hostility, hatred from the world as Christians is inevitable. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. It will occur. A sincere, authentic, passionate Christian cannot avoid the hatred of the world. In fact, these very disciples, again, would begin experiencing exactly what Jesus 
warn them about in just a few days from here. Well, we see this reality of hatred uh, in the world in a couple of ways that Jesus portrays in the text. First of all, in the attitudes of the world. The world expresses its hatred to those who follow Christ through their attitudes. Again, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. One thing to consider that Jesus articulates and indicates here is a characteristic of the world is that if you are a Christian, you will be hated. As I mentioned, the word hate is used eight times in this passage, and this is the default attitude of the world towards Christians. This word means to despise, to detest. It's a very visceral word in in communicating this intense attitude. And who is it that's expressing this hatred? Jesus says, the world. He uses that word world six times in the first two verses. The world. Now, what is this, the world? Most of you have probably heard before that the English word world in our Bibles in the Greek New Testament is the word cosmos or cosmos. Uh, And here it's not talking about what we may think of cosmos as the physical universe or even the physical earth. The word cosmos literally means the ordered world, the the order of the world, the the system of the world that we live in. Um, We we understand that, that the cosmos is ordered. Um, The opposite or, or contrary to cosmos is chaos. Chaos is disorder. Cosmos is order. We get a lot of English words from this cosmos, uh, cosmopolitan, um, cosmology, even cosmetics comes from this word cosmos, which you ladies know goes from disorder or order to disorder, right? Sorry. Um, I tried that joke on Amy and she did not suggest I use it, but I did not follow her advice. So the cosmos, the ordered system, chaos is disorder, cosmos is this ordered system. However, it's an ordered system under Satan's control. He is the ruler of this world. He is the prince and the power of the air. It is a system of unregenerate people under the control and the allegiance, even though they may not know it, to demonic forces of evil. It is a system of lies. It is a system of deception human ingenuity, human insight, raised up against the knowledge of God. And Jesus says the cosmos, under the rulership of Satan, will hate you. Hate you. Now, within the context of this upper room discourse that Jesus is giving as they're walking from Jerusalem to uh, the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, the cosmos there in that context, was the Jewish leadership. They hated Jesus. They were under the control of the evil one, even though it was a religious system. That religious system was under the control of the evil one. Decades later, the people to whom John would be writing this gospel account, the context of the world there would be the system of the Roman Empire. They too hated Jesus and hated his message and hated his people. There's a lot a lot of differences between the Jews and the Romans, but they are united in this, their hatred of Christ and their hatred of Christians. And according to Jesus, a defining characteristic of this world system is their hatred. Haters are going to hate. It is absolutely vital for us, therefore, to realize that we will experience hostility from the world. 
If you think you can live for Jesus faithfully, openly, fruitfully, authentically, and never experience opposition, you don't understand what Jesus is teaching here. There are some, quote-unquote, churches and some, quote-unquote, Christians who do seek to live in alliance with the world. According to Jesus, that can't happen. Can't happen. Expect hatred and hostility in the attitudes of the world, but not only that, in the actions of the world. In the actions of the world. He said in verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That word there for persecute means to pursue with the intent of inflicting harm. Persecution is to pursue with the intent of inflicting harm. So clearly it moves from these hostile attitudes to hostile actions. It moves from hateful words to hateful behavior. There is an intentionality here. What's interesting is in the book of Acts, as you see the church inaugurated in Acts chapter 2, initially the church was received warmly by their community. Notice what Acts 2 says, verse 47. This is the people of God praising God and what? They were having favor with all the people. So people began to receive the church initially very warmly. All the people were honoring them. But then as they began to preach the gospel message, as they began to preach about Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected, all that began to change. You move into chapter 4, and the Sanhedrin, the religious high court of Jerusalem, said, you are not allowed to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Well, they didn't obey that command. And so what happens next? You move into chapter 5, and they're beaten viciously for continuing to preach in the name of Jesus. On into chapter 7, and you find the very first Christian martyr is Stephen. He's killed for preaching the gospel to that very same Sanhedrin. And from there arose an intense, full-scale assault and intimidation of the people of God by the Jewish people. Again, by the time of the writing of this gospel account, when John wrote this, Christians had been experiencing intense, intense persecution for decades. And Jesus is saying, I told you it was going to be this way. I told you. Church history tells us that all of the original apostles, the 11 who were there at this conversation, they were all martyred for their faith in Christ except for John who wrote this gospel account. But John experienced still intense physical personal persecution, being exiled on the Isle of Patmos to fend for himself, even having his body thrown in a vat of boiling oil. Intense persecution by all of these apostles. Now, it's unlikely in our lifetime in the United States that we will experience that kind of extreme violence. But we do have friends, brothers and sisters around the world who are even today experiencing that type of persecution, that type of violence. But even though we may not face that in our day and age, though it may be coming to this country, 
that does not mean we still do not face persecution. And we need to be prepared to face hostile actions in our day. If I look at chapter 16, verse 2, the warning Jesus told them, he said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Obviously, we don't go to synagogues. That doesn't apply to us as far as the practical aspect. But if you remember, several months ago, we looked at the healing of the man with congenital blindness. He was born blind, and Jesus healed him. And so when his parents were questioned by the religious leaders, they said, you tell us, and you denounce Jesus to us, or guess what we're going to do? We're going to put you out of the synagogue. What did that warning or that threat carry? It carried the sense of, it's not like here, if you're put out of a church in Chattanooga, well, there's 400 other churches you can go to. In first century Jerusalem, if you're put out of the synagogue, you're put out of society. And by being put out of society, you're being put out of the central function of life, your commerce, your job, your trade, even childhood education was centered around the synagogue. And so Jesus is saying, guess what? You follow me. Here's the kind of person you, persecution you can expect. You will be put out of the synagogues, i.e., for us today, we will be put out of the regular availability of, of our organizations and systems and structures of our world, society. We can think of some equivalencies today. If you are an, an outspoken believer, if you're a faithful follower of Christ, you can have the likelihood in some businesses to be stepped over or looked over for that job promotion. If you're a faithful follower of Christ at the secular university and you have a professor who you know is very um, anti-Christian, you write a paper from your Christian worldview, you can expect to receive low grades. It happens because you confront his unbelief. You will be put out of public society. This is the reality of hatred that Jesus warns them about, and friends, he warns us about. Hatred in the form of attitudes and actions. And this leads to a question I want us to ask ourselves. Look at this next slide. Would I remain faithful to Jesus if threatened with intense persecution? Would I remain faithful to Jesus if threatened with intense persecution? One way you can know how you can answer that question is, how do you face the persecution that you experience today, even mild as it may be? Do you hide your confession of faith in Jesus from those you think may look down upon you? Do you fear some kind of social shunning? Do you cower away at the threat of harassment? Well, it makes you think you would stand up to intense persecution. It's unlikely. It is of utmost importance that we know how we would answer this question. Why? Because look what Jesus said in Matthew 10. He said, so everyone, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. A second question to consider would be this, is there any reason for the world to take notice of my faith and persecute me? Is there any reason? You see, the world does not hate 
false Christianity. It embraces false Christianity because that Christianity differs very little from itself. It perfectly tolerates a Christianity and perfectly tolerates Christians who fit in. If you were arrested for being a disciple of Jesus, is there enough evidence to convict you? That's the first thing I want us to consider. Jesus promises and warns us about the reality of being hated. Here's the second thing. Number two, the reasons for being hated. What are the reasons why we would be hated by the world? Now, in verse 25, Jesus quotes from Psalm 69, and he says there that he would be hated, quote, without a cause. And that is true. There is no cause for which the innocent son of God should be hated by the world. There's no legitimate cause for hatred and crucifixion of Jesus that would justify what they would do to him or, by extension, what they would do to his servants. Nevertheless, although there is no cause for hating Jesus, there are all kinds of illegitimate and irrational reasons that the world has for hating Jesus and for hating his followers. I want us to consider three from the text. The first is this, we'll be hated because of our connection to Christ. Christians will be hated, Jesus says, because of our connection to Christ. Again, verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. My mom worked at the elementary school that I attended for seven years, which means she knew everything I did every day because my teachers told on me every day. Thanks a lot, teachers. But also she knew all the kids in my classes and she would warn me regularly, hey, Troy, you don't need to associate with this kid. You don't need to hang around this kid. That's a bad influence. He's a bad seed. You don't need to do that. Guess what? Jesus warns his disciples, hey, you, you need to be careful about hanging around me. I'm warning you, if you have a connection to me, if you have a relationship with me, it will not go well with you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. Well, did they persecute Jesus? Well, John really intensely records time and again throughout his gospel how Jesus was, in fact, persecuted. Let me remind you of some of them. We'll go through these quickly. In John 5, 16, John says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. John 7, 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. John 8, 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. John 10, 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. John eleven fifty three. so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. One thing that is consistent and ongoing throughout Jesus' ministry is his personal persecution. They came against him with intense hatred. We've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to kill him. And Jesus said, servant's not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, and they did, these disciples were all witnesses of it, they will persecute you as well. Therefore, disciples of Jesus necessarily should expect to receive the same kind of treatment from the world. Why? Because of our connection to Christ. In fact, notice what he said in verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. That's the reason. Reason number one Jesus gives, and it's the central reason in this passage, because of our connection to him. 
But here's what I want you to consider. Being persecuted because of our allegiance and connection to Jesus is one of the greatest privileges we could ever experience. It's one of the greatest blessings we could ever have. It is a privilege to bear Christ's name in the midst of a hostile world. In fact, I would say this, bearing up under persecution for the name of Jesus authenticates your faith in Christ. One of the shows I rarely watch to put me to sleep (laughs) is Antiques Roadshow. It's amazing how quickly that will put me to sleep. And uh, if you've ever, you've seen the show, right? Antiques Roadshow. And basically, PBS comes into a city and they rent out a massive convention center. They have several dozen experts. And then thousands of people show up at this convention center with all of their knickknack paddy wax, And they want to see if they've got something they bought for $2 at a thrift store or something they inherited from their aunt, Giselle, or something that they saw at a, at a uh, garage sale. Is this worth something? And so these experts will review their items, and they'll let them know if it has value or not, and they'll let them know if it has worth or not. And particularly with, with uh, paintings and with pottery and vases and statues and those kind of things, one of the things that the expert will do is he'll take that vase or he'll take that pot or he'll take that statue, and he'll turn it on its side and look at the hallmark at the bottom of that piece. The hallmark, I've got a picture of a hallmark here, kind of what it looks like. And so there he can look at the hallmark and he can determine, okay, where this was made, who designed it, who made it, how old is it based on this particular hallmark and what the value of this is. Look at what J.C. Ryle has said. He says, persecution in short is like the goldsmith's hallmark on real silver and gold. It is one of the marks of a converted man. That's why I say it's a blessing. It authenticates our faith. And so if you experience some oversight at work because of your faith, if you experience some oppression from the secular professor, if you experience being ostracized because of your allegiance to Christ, brother and sister, bless the Lord. It's the hallmark It's the authenticating mark of your faith. It confirms to our own souls the genuineness of our faith. And so we can be thankful for that. Paul and, excuse me, Peter and John were thankful for that. When they were persecuted and beaten for preaching Jesus, notice how they responded in Acts 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Paul gave a similar instruction to the church at Philippi and by extension to the church in Lookout Valley. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That word granted is literally a grace gift. It is a grace gift from the Lord if you suffer for the name of of Christ. And we will suffer because of our connection to Jesus. The servant is not greater than the master. Here's a second thing. It will also occur because of our calling out of the world. Because of our calling out of the world. Jesus said, if you were of the world, 
The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. According to Jesus, the world loves its own. That is, the world loves those that share its self-centered, sin-dismissing values. And the world actually loves so-called churches and so-called Christians that don't confront or call into question those perverse values as well. But Christians who live out and even speak out their biblically informed values, that will infuriate the world. We should think differently. We should act differently. We should speak differently. Why? Because we have been chosen out of the cosmos, out of the satanic world system. We are the called out ones. In fact, it is this reality that we're the chosen of God, that we're the called out ones of God that will actually infuriate the world even more. Oh, you Christians, you think you're better than everybody else because you think you're the, you're the children of God. Now, that certainly isn't something that we would brag about. It's not a point of pride. I mean, Paul said in Ephesians 2, if you understand grace, it removes all boasting, but yet it is true. Christian, you have been called out of the world, chosen out of the world by Jesus himself. This idea is repulsive to the unregenerate mind. So we will be hated because of our connection to Christ. We'll be hated because of our calling out of the world. But thirdly, we'll be hated because of the condemnation of the world. Jesus says something very curious in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. What what does he mean here? Would the world be uh, guiltless if Jesus hadn't come? No, of course not. If you remember in John 3, whenever Jesus gave John 3, 16, two verses later, he says the world stands condemned. The world is already condemned. So it's not that they are uncondemned, if Jesus had not come and spoken, what it is is that the coming of Jesus and speaking plainly the gospel, speaking plainly the word, it has both confirmed and compounded their guilt. Why is Jesus' teaching rejected by the world? That's what he's talking about here. Well, think about this. If Jesus' teaching would, ju- would have just been what we might call deistic moralism, if he would have just taught things like, love your neighbor as yourself, welcome the little children unto you, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, if that would have been the sum total of Jesus' teaching, he wouldn't have been hated by the world. Everybody recognizes those values and those morals. I don't care how degenerate you are. But that's not where his teaching ended. Oh, it included those things for sure. But those things were just simply ancillary and subordinate to the central teaching. What was the central teaching of Jesus? The world is condemned in their sin. And unless the Son of God came, died a bloody, uh, vicious death in their place, they would be stuck in their condemnation. Friends, the world doesn't want to hear that message. Consider, for instance, What's recorded in John chapter 6? 
In John chapter 6, we have the record of Jesus feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children. He met their very real temporary physical need, and the crowd followed him. The crowd ate it up quite literally. He fed the 5,000. And that's what those in the world would probably think the central mission of the church would be. If you were to go ask a random non-Christian on the street, what do you think is the central mission of the church? They would probably respond by saying something to the effect of meeting physical needs, housing the homeless, feeding the poor, caring for those who are downtrodden. And for sure, we should do all those things. But that is not the central message of the church. That is not the central mission of the church. Because here's what Jesus did after meeting their temporary physical need by feeding them. He began to proclaim the necessity of a bloody Savior. In John chapter 6, he began to proclaim the necessity of giving his flesh. And how did they respond to that message? After just having their temporary physical need met, they responded, verse 66 of John 6. After this, many, myriad of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, the world will accept a church and the world will accept a Christian message that's only all about meeting physical, temporary needs. And again, we should meet temporary physical needs. But that is not the central message of the church. The central message of the church is the gospel of Jesus who came to die for lost sinners like you and I. And that is shunned by the church because it indicts people in their sinfulness. Don't tell me I'm a condemned sinner. Just give me some money and let me go on my way. So what are we to do? What are we to do if the reality of the world's hatred is to be expected and anticipated? What are we to do? That leads to the third and final point I want us to consider from the passage, and that is the response to being hated. The response to being hated. There may be times as a Christian in this hostile world where you feel like you are standing all alone. But you need to know something. If you're a Christian, you are never standing alone. You're never standing alone. Notice the promise Jesus gave in verse 26. But when the helper, the paraclete, the comforter, the counselor, the advocate, when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus says, I'm going to send you from the Father, the third person of the Trinity, who will be with you. You're never standing alone. The Spirit will bear witness of Jesus, even in the face of opposition. So what is the response to hatred, to hostility, to persecution, the response is to, by the power of the Spirit, continue to lovingly, kindly, compassionately, tenderly speak the good news of the gospel. That's what we do. You'll be hated. Through the power of the Spirit, continue to spare witness for Jesus. 
Sometimes we see that word witness and we think structure, visitation time, cold call conversations at the front doorstep. And certainly there's a place for that. But I want you to think more organically as you go throughout your day, as you encounter people in your life. Because here's the thing. We don't have any problem talking about things we love, right? I don't have any problem talking about my four grandkids. I have no problem talking about my children. I have no issue talking about uh, the sports teams that I like. I don't have any problem talking about the latest movie that I thought really gripped me. I don't have any problem talking about a music artist or a band or something else that I, I am appreciative of. We won't have any problem talking about Jesus as we are led by the Spirit and also as we engage with the Scriptures. Interestingly, you may have missed it. In verse 27, Jesus actually predicts the New Testament Scripture. Notice what he says to his disciples, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He's talking to the 11 apostles and he's talking about the prediction of the apostolic witness. What is the apostolic witness of Jesus? It's the 27 books of the New Testament. You're gonna bear witness about me. And by God's grace, we still have the apostolic witness of Jesus because they were with him from the beginning. And so as we have the Holy Spirit, we have the presence of him with us and in us, we have the apostolic witness of Christ through the scriptures, we will stand boldly, kindly, compassionately for Christ. And talking about him, bearing witness for him, will be very normal and very natural because we love him. Because we love him. Haters are going to hate. But that does not change our love for the Lord. In fact, what you'll discover is that if you stand up and endure through the hatred of the world, it will actually refine your faith. It will refine your faith. And that really leads to my last thought. Our allegiance to Christ will be forged in the fires of persecution. Persecution.